join me as we pray? Father, may that be the heart and the spirit of this church. God, it may be the desire of these people in this room that we do not come for fame or fortune. God, we come to make much of your name. Father, I pray for the hurting. I pray for the sick. I pray for the discouraged. I pray for the doubting. I pray for those that are struggling this morning in their faith and in their hope. And God, I know that we can come to a place like this. We can sing. We can know all the things that we're supposed to do. We know all the things that we're supposed to think. But God, may this morning, it's a day that we look to you. We don't get fixated on our problems. We don't get fixated on our circumstances. But God, may today be a day that we come to fixate ourselves on you. And may who you are and what you are then inform how we think and how we feel and how we respond today. Father, bless us. Teach us. Instruct us. Convict us as we worship you this morning. And I ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I invite for you to take it and turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, when you come in and you get one of those bulletins like I spoke about a few moments ago, there's always notes on the back of that bulletin if you want to use that during our time together in the Word. But Exodus 32 is where we're going to continue in our study through the book of Exodus together. Um, some of you have, uh, this is a little bit of a different format than what we've done um, in the last uh, months prior as far as the different format of how we're doing worship. Um, some of the idea is to change some things up and some of the idea is just to make the focus be the focus. And the focus at every time we come together should be on God. And the way that we hear from God and the way that we worship God and the way we respond to God is not only through praise and through worship and through our voices, but also through the reading and studying of His Word and then applying His Word to our lives. And so we're going to have some more time for musical worship as we respond to God's Word at the end of the service, but we wanted to take some time to say, okay, so if we're going to come and we're going to respond and we're going to worship and we're going to sing about the goodness of God, let us sing about the goodness that we've just studied and the goodness that we've just talked about and the goodness that we see in Scripture. So we have been walking through on Sunday mornings, we've been walking through the book of Exodus, looking at what does it mean to be set apart as God's people? What does it mean to be a people apart from the world? And so Exodus is all about how God comes in and he gets the Jewish Israelite people and he brings them out of the bondage of Egypt and he takes them now to the promised land. And all throughout that course of history, he is showing them this is what it means to be 
mine. And this is what it means to be my people. And so up until about Exodus chapter 20, which is where we ended last Sunday morning, we ended in Exodus chapter 20, and all up through that point, God had been speaking. He had been speaking primarily to Moses, who then spoke to Aaron, and then who then spoke to the people. But then you get to Exodus chapter 20, and that they're, they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and God, the presence of God, descends upon the mountaintop, and then God begins to reveal himself directly to his people. And we left off there in Exodus 20 last week talking about the holiness of God and talking about the otherness of God and talking about the majesty of God. And if you remember last week when we left off, they are there at the base of the mountain and God is not just speaking to Moses, but God is speaking to his people. And then you see God began to give direct revelation to his people. And that is where we're at this morning. God has given us direct revelation through His Word. We are so blessed as a people this morning not to be here and not to be dependent upon an intermediary, not to be dependent upon someone that can translate or dissect for us God's Word or for someone to stand up and say, none of you have any idea what God has said. Now I will tell you what God has said. No, every single one of us here this morning have an opportunity to have God's revelation directly to us right in front of us. And so as we come and we make a switch, if you will, and we're going to jump all the way to Exodus 32, and I'm going to explain that here in a moment. But as we move this, we move from seeing a people that are being directed and guided by God speaking through people to now a people that are being directed and guided by God's instruction. And we see the problems that come up when we have people that ignore and deny the Word of God for the sake of what is pleasurable and what is easy, and what is comfortable. So in Exodus 32, we come into the people at the base of the mountain. Chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20 through 23, if you're to thumb back through there, you'll see that God begins to give them direct instructions. He begins to give them direct instructions about the commands and about the laws and what his expectations are for them. Then you get to Exodus chapter 24, and in verse 3, the Bible says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules that all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So then it goes on in the following verses there in chapter 24, and Moses writes these down in the book of the covenant. And in verse 7 it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And so God comes and he says, This is what I want you to do. The people say, Amen. This is what we'll do. And then Exodus 24, all the way to chapter 32, you see God then give instructions about this is how you're to worship me. This is how you're to construct the tabernacle. This is how you're to construct the Ark of the Covenant. This is how you're to construct the furnishings. All the while, God is saying, this is how you approach me, and this is how you worship me. And while all of this is going on, we get insight to what the people are doing. You get the last part of chapter 24, and it says, so Moses went up on the mountain and he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. That's chapter 24 and verse 18. And then while Moses is up on the mountain and he's receiving the instruction from the Lord, chapter 32 then moves back and shows us what the people are doing in response. And the big thing that I want you to see with thee this morning is the, as I put there at the top of the notes, the deceitfulness of sin. 
Because as Moses is up on the mountain and he is receiving instruction from the Lord, and as the people have heard the commands and the instruction from God and said, we have heard you and we will commit to be obedient. And while all of these things are happening, the people are still under the threat of the deceit of sin getting into their hearts and their lives. And there's not a single set of ears in this room this morning that is immune from the deceitfulness and the danger and the temptation of sin. So what I want us to do this morning is I want to look at some different ways that sin deceives us. We're going to look here in the text of chapter 32 and look at the ways that sin enters into you and I may be here this morning and we may say, well, Spence, that's their problem. That's not our problem. Oh, we're so much more mature. Oh, we're so much more immune. Oh, we're such more advanced. Oh, we're such more, uh, so much more uh, knowledgeable. And the reality is, is every single one of us face these same deceptions every single day. So look with me in chapter 32. We're going to pick it up. Remind, Remember, these things are going on as this story opens up in chapter 32. Moses is still on the mountain. God is still downloading to him how to come, how to worship, how to build the furnishings, all of these things that have to do with their obedience to God. And while Moses is up hearing from God, the people are down at the base of the mountain doing this verse one it says when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain and the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him up make us gods who shall go before us as for this Moses the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt we do not know what has become of him there are multiple ways that sin tries to deceive us there's four different ways that I want you to see with me out of the text how sin will try to deceive us and sin will try to derail our worship of God the first way that we see there in chapter 32 and verse 1 is in the realm of social opinions in social opinions notice how the language gives us in verse 1 it says when the people saw that Moses it says the people gathered themselves together and the people said to Aaron make us God it has this idea that the people gather together and there's enough of them to get all piled up and they say, you know what? We think or we feel or we believe or it's our assumption or it is our agreement together and they start to think that just because a whole group of black-hearted sinful people get together and make a decision, then that is the same as speaking for God. I don't know about you, but sometimes this Christianity thing feels like I'm in a constant minority. I'm constantly, it feels like sometimes, and maybe I'm just being a sissy, but sometimes it feels like I am constantly the awkward person that never wants to have anything. I'm always the fuddy-duddy in the group. And there's just always this constant opinion of social and cultural pressure saying, well, everybody says it's okay, and everybody's already agreed to this, and everybody, everybody's already decided on this, and all of these things are going on. And we must be careful because Satan and sin will use social opinions to make us, to get us, to pressure us to compromise. It'll get us to compromise. And so many times we start to find ourselves going, well, if enough people said it, that must mean it's true. May I remind you that the majority does not mean authority. And just because there's volume and reputation doesn't mean that it is true. And yet there are those that in this culture and in this world that have no fear of God and they have no reverence for the things of God and they think that they say it loud enough and they think if they say it often enough, then we will start to believe them. Come to Jaylene and I's house. And this sweet little child will say, I want a popsicle. 
I want a popsicle. I want a popsicle. I want a popsicle. I want a popsicle. I want a popsicle. Are you not hearing me? I want a popsicle. Popsicle, popsicle, popsicle. And it doesn't matter how often they say it. And it doesn't matter how loud they say it. They do not have the authority or the autonomy to decide what is true and what is right and what is good for them. And then one of the things that you see here in verse 1 of chapter 32, it says when the people, the people get together and say, oh, you know what? If we have decided that must mean it is a good thing. And I want to remind you this morning, church, that every direction has a destination. When these people come to Moses, there's an agenda. When these people come to Moses, there's a purpose. When these people come to, not not Moses, I'm sorry. When these people come to Aaron, there is a reason why they are coming. It says when the people came, when the people saw that Moses delayed, they gathered themselves, they went to Aaron, and what do they do? Up, make us gods who shall go before us. They are coming and they're saying, hey, we have decided We're going to change the plan. We're going to change the direction. We are not going to listen to the word of God. We're not going to listen to the command of God. We're not going to listen to the truthfulness of God's word. We are going to make our own decisions, what is right and what is wrong. And I find it funny that they look at Aaron and say, we don't know what has happened to this man, Moses. I find that humorous because you go back to chapter 24 and verse 18, as I've already told you about, that they say, they saw, they heard, they knew, Moses goes up on the mountain to speak with God. They knew where Moses was at. They didn't go up and look for Moses. They hadn't asked about if Moses was still up there or find a search committee or anything else. They just decided, you know what? We want to change the direction. We want to change what we call obedience. We want to do our own thing our own way. And I don't know who said it first, but I heard somebody say it here a while back, that often what is biblical is not popular. And what is popular is rarely biblical. We need to be on guard, church. That we do not let the opinions of the culture. That we do not let the opinions of the society. That we do not let the opinions of the few, the godless, direct what is right and wrong for us. And so many times we can come in and it's not a matter of what God wants. It's a matter of what we think. It's not a matter of what the the Spirit is leading us to do. It's a matter of what public opinion and popular opinion. And you come in here and you see this deceitfulness from the people. It was just back on June the 23rd when there was a big march. A big march held in New York City called the, the Drag March. And in this march, there's videos of people. Demonstrating and showing a lack of fear for God. And they're walking down the street. And they're making it very public. That they are coming for our children. And if we think that our culture and if we think that our society is neutral or innocent or fears God then we're not paying attention. And one of the ways that sin can begin to creep in and the sin that can get footholds into our lives is they deceive us through social opinion. But it's not just social opinion. It goes on there in the text of Exodus 32 and it talks about the sufficiency of man. If you look there in verse 2, notice how Aaron responds. We, we see the sufficiency of man pop up as a deceitful ploy. It says in verse 2, So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in their ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all of the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he 
he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The people come to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we want you to make us gods. We want something that we can worship. And so Aaron heard the the, the popular opinions. Aaron heard the the pressure from his peers. And he decided, you know what? We can choose our own deities. And so notice what they did. They used the very gifts that God had given them to form the things that they were going to then use to rebel against God. Where did the earrings come? Where did the bracelets come? Where did all of the jewelry come from? It came from the Egyptians. When they were leaving, God put it in the heart of the Egyptians and they plundered the Egyptians. So when they are sitting there at the base of the mountain, the very earrings that they are using to fold, to fashion into the golden calf was the very things that God had given them. Do you ever find yourselves being tempted to worship possessions or people or relationships that God gave you to begin with. How tempting it is for you and I to start to think that we are going to make our own gods. And so what do they do? They take all of these medals, which, you know, to me and you and my sound kind of weird. So you mean they take all the earrings, they take all the bracelets, they take all the nose studs, they take all of that stuff, the body piercings, they take all that, they melt it down, they form a calf or a multiple number of little idols that are there. And then the people are like, oh, see, now that is God. And you and I might go, well, how really ridiculous can you be? And yet, there are people that worship their reputation on social media. And there's people that worship hobby. There's people that worship a vocation. There's people that worship a possession. There's all sorts of people in this world that are worshiping all sorts of things that are not from God. And the way that it turns around here in this passage is as Moses or as Aaron is responding to the people, they're like, okay, so we can create our own gods. In other words, he is saying we can be an autonomous people. We can then choose who is worthy of our worship. We then can choose how we worship and we can then choose what we worship. And autonomy is the carrot to try to tempt us, to try to think that we can be independent, to try to think that we don't need anybody. That's the mantra of most of you teenagers. You get older, you think, I don't need anybody and I can live it myself. And then you learn as maturity goes that you always are going to be working for somebody. But it's the idea that we have that autonomy that says, you know what, this is the carrot. And yet denial is the goal. What Satan is trying to do, what sin is trying to do is they want you to think that you can make your own decisions as long as your decisions deny the authority of God. So he says, bring me Bring me your jewelry. I will fashion into an idol. And then we will put this idol up and we will say, look at what we have done. We have now created our own gods and we now have established what is right and what is wrong. And that arrogance and that pride are both used as tools for us to rebel against God. I find it even more striking if you're there in chapter 32. Just turn to the left just a few pages over to chapter 20 because I think it's so striking how quickly the people turn from what God had told them to do. <clears throat> if you go to chapter 20 and you got verses 1 down through verse 17 is the popular Ten Commandments. 
But then so often we miss the rest of the passage there in chapter 20 because you get to chapter 20 and verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make the gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. God had just told them a few chapters and just a few days before, don't do it. How quickly you and I say one thing and do something different. How quickly it turns around on January the 1st and you and I tell ourselves we've got to lose weight. Oh, we've got to lose weight. And then February 1st, I'm not that overweight. January 1 comes around, I'm going to read the Bible this year. I am going to read the Bible from cover to cover. I'm going to get myself a Bible reading plan. I'm going to get myself one of those chronological Bibles. I am going to do it. And then you get to about mid-March when you get into the good stuff in Leviticus, and it's like, I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to be legalistic about this. This isn't a big deal for me. Or how often you and I sit there and we make a renewed commitment to God or we say, well, we need to do this. And how easy it is for you and I then to decide, well, you know what? I know this is what God put in my heart. I know this is what the Holy Spirit convicted me of. I know this was something that I felt like was obedient and faithful to God. But now I have decided that I am going to change the standards. I am going to change the definition. I am going to alter what obedience looks like for me. So here in chapter 32, not only does sin and Satan use social opinions to deceive us and to tempt us into sin, but then Satan and sin also uses our own sufficiency, our own illusion of our sufficiency to think that you and I can make these decisions and you and I can make these choices. But then there's another one in verse 5. And it's the deception of syncretism. Syncretism. I'm not asking you to figure out how to spell it. It should be behind me. Ah, see, it's up there. It's up there. So it tells you how to spell it. So you don't have to think about, well, I don't know what that Syncretism. What does it mean? Syncretism is where you take two things that are different and you think that you can make them the same. Notice how this happens here in verse 5. They made these gods. They set them up. The people said, these are your gods, O Israel. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? And then notice verse 5. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. He built an altar before what? He built an altar to what? He built an altar to the golden calves that he had just created. He built an altar to a false god. He built an altar to the exact thing that God had told them back in Exodus 20. Do not do. What does he do? He not just builds an altar. Ooh, that's bad enough. But then you go on in verse 5 and he built an altar and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the what does your Bible say? Most of your Bibles are going to say the Lord. It may be a different te type text. It may be a capital L, capital O, R, D. It may be a lowercase. I'm not sure how all your Bibles will put it there. But notice what he says. He says tomorrow we will proclaim a festival to the Lord. That idea of Lord there is talking about the deity. It's talking about the person of our creator God. So what does Aaron do? Aaron says, I've got these idols. I've got these golden idols that God explicitly said don't do. But yet I think I'm I'm going to create an altar. I'm going to offer up worship. And we're going to do all these things in the name of God. We're going to take the very things that God abhors and tells us not to do. 
But we do them in the name of God and we think that is okay. Sometimes we do that with music. Sometimes we do that with dancing. Sometimes we do that with film. Sometimes we do that with our behavior in the society around us. As long as we put Christians somewhere in the description, that makes it okay. And yet here in the text, what is going on, if you notice... It says, Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What is going on? Well, if you look there in the text, the action was the same. The, thing, the same way that God said you will come and worship me is the same way that people are coming and worshiping the idol. And the same way that the people were instructed, how do they come and what do they say and how and how do they observe and, and how do they come and they worship God is the same way they're coming and they're doing it for the golden calves there were two different things they were they were doing together and they thought oh it is all the same thing the problem is is the objects were different in one instance Aaron is leading the people to worship an idol a thing that isn't God a thing that it's supplanted the deity of God a thing that they were putting looking towards that wasn't God that is on one hand and the other hand is they were denying the authority of God they were denying the obedience of God and they were denying the presence of God in their lives. The language was the same. The action was the same. But the objects were different. This is where I want to remind you. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I said this to some of you, and I'm going to keep saying it, and I'm going to keep saying it, and I'm going to keep saying it. But this is a matter of, it's not whether, but Which? When they come there, it's not a matter of whether you will worship. It's not a matter of whether you will be tempted. It's not a matter of whether you will be deceived. It's a matter of which God will you serve. And that is the danger of syncretism. The danger of syncretism says, well, you know what? You need to reach them, and you need to be a part of them, and you need to support them, and you need to encourage them, and you need to get them right where they're at. The problem is, is that sometimes, brothers and sisters, there is no distinction between God's people and the world. I heard a preacher this week talk about it, the relationship between the church and the world. You know, so many times there's one argument over there that says the church has to go to the world to reach the world. And there's another argument over here saying, well, the church should be set apart from the world. And then they're like, well, then how do you reach the world? And the way he said it, I thought was so helpful for me. He said, it's like having a boat in the water. You take a boat and you put it in the water. The church being the boat and the world being the water. You want to have the boat in the water because that is where it is designed to be. The problem is when you start getting water into the boat. I'm not saying I've got all the answers and I'm not saying I've got to completely figure it out. How do we, as a church, navigate the waters of sin and rebellion and godlessness in this world? But we also need to understand the danger of syncretism by which we get water in the boat. So he says there in chapter five, or in chapter 32, in verses 5 down through verse 6, we see what Aaron does. 
So you see this deceit and you see this temptation of sin. It comes in but through, the, through the, the vein of social opinions. It, it comes in through the, the, the desire of uh, autonomy and sufficiency. It comes in through the act of syncretism and people coming together and saying we can do both and we can decide both. And God is saying, I will not compete. And then the last deceit that we see here from the text has to do with the silence from God. I don't understand why sometimes God is silent and sometimes He's not. Friday afternoon, Jaylene and I went and watched um, the movie Sound of Freedom. If you haven't seen that movie yet, you don't need to go eat lunch today. You don't need to look at your phone. You need to go straight to wherever you can get to see that film. And you need to see the film. And then once you see the film, you need to consider the truth being communicated in that film and then we need to get back together as a church and say so what can the church do about the problem being shown in the film so if you haven't seen it yet I think we should make it a means of membership <laughs> and fellowship that you have to see it because there are some things that you and I can then hear about or we can know about and we can just dismiss. And there's some things that when you are faced with it, visually, auditorily, however, that you can't deny it. And to be honest with you, I, I don't understand why it seems like God has been silent for so long on the issue of the abuse and the mistreatment of children. I don't understand why God has been so silent for so long when it comes to the abortion industry. Over 60 million children in the United States since 1973, over 60 million have been aborted. And they say the numbers are going down, and, and you can say, well, Roe v. Wade was, was struck down last year, but we have no way of counting the medical abortions that are taking place with the over-counter medication that has now been coming along, that is now being pushed. And now you can buy medication. You can buy abortifacient medication from a vending machine. You can buy abortifacient medication over the counter anonymously. There is no way that we can track how many pregnancies are being terminated, which represent the abuse and the mistreatment of images made by the will and design of God. We have no way. And you know, to be honest with you, I, I don't understand why God is silent. I don't understand why God is silent on subjects like you see about in the movie Sound of Freedom. I don't understand why God is silent on the subjects like you see, <coughs> excuse me, when it comes to the question of abortion, I don't understand why when you turn on the television or you open up your social media feed or you look at the news and you see where people are being perpetrated and people are being abused and our children are being held vulnerable, I don't understand why God is being silent. And you and I can look at a movie like that and you and I can look at a scenario like that and we can say, God, why aren't you doing something? But at the same time, I don't understand why God is being silent 
on the sins of the church and the accommodation of the church and why God is being silent when people inside the church make a mockery of the things of God. There's an item in the hospital. <laughs> when I showed up at the hospital, I'd just come from work, so I'm in a different vocational attire. And I'm sitting there, and this nurse comes in, and she's taking care of the, the people that I was there to see, and she's making, doing her thing, and as I'm sitting there visiting with them, um, the conversation is made about me being a pastor. And that woman turned around and she looked at me. And you never know how this is, question is going to turn. But she looked at me and she said, are you a preacher? Yes, and the conversation went on and come to find out. She doesn't go to church because she'd been hurt by people inside the church. Her testimony and her story is rampant in our community and our society. I don't understand why God is silent when the church does not act like the church. So one of the ways that sin and Satan will use the silence is not just to delay where we start to think we get away from it, but sometimes sin and Satan will use the silence to make us think that what we are doing is okay. So what does it do here? So the people, to get back to the text in chapter 32, the people, they eat. it says, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose to play. That's the last part of verse 6. And then, yeah, you might think, well, then God's going to come down and say, no, you better not, or you better stop that, or oh, you're in trouble now, or you would think that God's going to come in and boom from heaven and to say, that's it. But what does it say in verse 7? And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hard against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. One of the last ways that I want you to see in this text that we will see Satan and sin try to deceive us is through silent affirmation. And just because God is silent to us doesn't mean that God approves of what we are doing. And yet so many times we start to think, well, you know what? God hasn't slapped us on the hand. God hasn't said no. Oh, God, God isn't uh, stopping us so therefore it must mean it's okay and brothers and sisters I want to remind you that just because God isn't speaking to us doesn't mean that God is not speaking to someone and as you see here in the text God has already spoken God had already talked to Moses, and Moses, this is what you shall do. God had already talked to the people in Exodus chapter 20, chapter 21, and chapter 22, and chapter 23. He had already said, this is what you to do. And so when the people are sitting there in verse 6, and they're getting up, and they're partying, some, some other commentators will say it was more of a sexual nature, but whatever it is, they are being practicing lasciviousness, debauchery are the old-fashioned terms. They were living in an immoral lifestyle, and they were worshiping things that weren't from God. And just because God hadn't spoken in the immediate moment doesn't mean that God is okay with it. 
I don't know if it's Adrian Rogers, I don't know if it's Charles Spurgeon, I don't know what pastor it was from a year gone by, but he made the point that if God will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and he will not destroy the U.S., then he owes them, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, he owes them an apology. So you and I may be here this morning, you're like, well, you know what, if God's really going to do something, then God should have already done something. Maybe God is doing something. Maybe God is talking to some people and he's going to say, I am going to do something about it. Maybe God has already spoken. He's already told us what is right. Maybe he's already told us what is wrong. And maybe instead of you and I going, well, if God hasn't spoken, then we are allowed to do it. Maybe we should go back to the word and say, this is what God's word says. And it's a question. What does God's word say? And yet, sin and Satan will seek to use that temptation of silent affirmation to get you and I to do the things that God has already said don't do. So how do we then use a passage like this in Exodus 32 and we plug it into the core values of this church? How, how do we take that and say, okay, so Spence, we see these deceptions, we see these temptations here in the text, so then what do we do? So we've talked about the core values of the church being build families, teach the Bible, be the church. These are the things that we want to make true about us. So then how do we take a text like this and the deceptions and the temptations that are there, how do we take that and then plug that in and applicate applicable way to ask us, then what do we do? When it comes to build the family, my plea for us this morning is that we define and respond to sin biblically. We define and we respond to sin biblically. There's an attempt right now, and it's not a new attempt, it's been going on, but it's gaining steam. But there's a constant Attempt and there's a constant onslaught to try to redefine what Bible calls what the Bible calls sin. Now we will call it a sickness. Now we will call it a disease. Now we will call it a way that you were born. Now we will call it a lot of other things, but we will not call it what the Bible calls it, and that is sin. And we redefine, and, and when we redefine, then we take away the accountability and the responsibility for that action. So we need to define and respond to sin biblically. I'm not saying that we are mean-spirited. I'm not saying that we are hateful. I'm not saying that we are judgmental. But we're just saying if the Bible calls it sin, it's sin. So we need to define and respond to sin biblically. We need to proclaim the need for salvation. Oh, the people are here in the text in chapter 32 and verses 1 through 10. The people, <coughs> excuse me, the people are sinning. And you may say, so Spence, we're in that situation right now that we see that there's a lot of sin going on around us. What do we do? We go around and go, oh, you're headed for hell. Oh, you're bad people. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. And we go around pointing our bony finger at people. No, we teach them that because of their sin, God loved them so much that he sent his son to die for them. And the greatest need that we have as a people, the greatest need that we have as a church, the greatest need that we have as a community is not better behavior and not better practices and not different attitudes. We need a different heart. That's what Ms. Carol read this morning. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's the idea that the greatest need of this body of believers is a right relationship with God. See, the problem here in the text in chapter 32, the problem was not idolatry. The problem was their fear of God. 
The problem was not that they made golden idols and they had a big party for it. The problem was is they were sinning against God. The problem was not the fact that they were separated by a mountaintop and the plains below them. It's they were separated from God in their heart by their sin. The issue is not what you see on the surface. The issue is always a spiritual issue. And we have a lot of people in this community that are spiritually sick. They don't have a right relationship. They don't have a right fellowship. And they're not serving God the way they should. So we proclaim the need for salvation. And then this last one, and I'm done, we show the gospel. We show the gospel. Oh, we understand the deceitfulness of sin. We understand the temptations of Satan. We understand the attacks of this world. We understand the ways that our society and our culture will seek to tear us apart and to separate us and to divide us. So then what do we do as a church? We show people the gospel. There's plenty of churches that are exclusive. And there's plenty of churches that'll tell you how wrong you are. And there's plenty of churches that will make you look, talk, and act like them in order to be accepted and welcomed by them. There are plenty of churches that are out there that have this idea that we are the only people in town that have it figured out. But may I encourage us and plead with us to show people that God loves them and to show people that Jesus came and died for them and to show them that if God can forgive me and God can forgive you, then God can forgive them. And what would it be like for us to be a church that showed the gospel to this community? Oh, Spence, you don't understand. You see, we always are having a hard time doing that because all I am is constantly fixated with all the bad stuff. All I'm fixated is all the videos of all the people that I don't like, all the people doing the things that I don't agree with, all the godlessness. And all I do is constantly get ate up with discouragement and frustration and bitterness and anger. How can they do that? How should they do that? How can they get away with that? And all I am is always fixated on what is wrong. You ever been there? Maybe today it's a day that we need to say, God, may we show this community what is right and what is good. The deceitfulness of sin is always at our door. The deceitfulness of sin is always trying to take you and I captive and to tempt you and I to deny, to ignore, and to abandon the things of God. May today be a day that we look to God and we guard ourselves from the deceitful attempts of Satan and sin. Pray with me. Father, there are some in this room there's some in this room that God, if they are to be honest are dabbling in idolatry. God, there's some in this room that are being deceived even as they sit here. God, there are some in this room 
that have traded in their worship of you for, this, for their worship of themselves or this world. Father, there are some that are here this morning that are far from you. And, and they look right. They sound right. But their heart isn't right. And God, it's not a matter of me calling them out. It's not a matter of me. God, it's a matter of you. So God, I pray that as we sing, God, I pray, I ask that as we respond, that God, that we would pray. We would pray for the hurting and the hopeless. God, that we would lift up the struggled and conflicted. Father, that we that we as a church that we would look to you. God, that we'd be aware of the dangers and the struggles and the temptations that we have in this world. But oh God, that we not lose sight of your plan and your purpose for our lives. Father, I pray in these next few songs that the conviction of your spirit will come upon this place. And Father, there's decisions that we need to make that God, that you begin to work in our hearts and our lives. God, if there's attitudes that need to change that you begin to work in our hearts and our lives. Behaviors that need to stop, behaviors that need to start. God, that you would use this reminder of the subtleness of sin. That God, in these next few songs as we sing, God, may your spirit reveal, illuminate, show. Father, may we worship you truly in these next few moments. And I ask all these things in your son's name.